Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and as a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders, all of you, clothe yourselves in humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, stand, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you by his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, who I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Good morning. Thanks, Aubrey, for, for reading that for us. I was going to scare Cam and, said, and say that we were going to spend all of our time and greet one another with a holy kiss and then um, work about how to uh, implement that into our daily lives, but I, we're not going to do that <laughs> this morning. Uh, let's see if I've got this uh, working. There we go. Uh, most of you uh, might know me. Uh, my name is Aaron. I've been here since the start. Most of you know me as uh, Susanna's husband. Uh, she's in the, she leads the kids' ministry here. I get to look after Miles, and it's a wonderful job. absolutely love him to bits. Uh, but Cam's uh, kindly uh, asked me to preach and finish off 1 Peter uh, for you. I work in an intensive care unit uh, at the Flinders Medical Centre, and one of the more impactful parts of my job is being in the room when someone's dying. I still remember this young father who came in 
he was riddled with cancer. Uh, he had a young family, had three kids, lovely wife. But he wasn't planning on dying anytime soon. But he made this trip to the intensive care unit and the doctors had the discussion and life support wasn't going to help him. The family was there within the doctor, myself, and we made the hard decision uh, that we weren't going to put him on the breathing machine because it had spread to his lungs. And they had decided that they would pursue the last couple hours of their life uh, with their dad, with their husband, uh, in comfort and alert and conscious uh, together. I spent the last few hours in there with him. Uh, There was crying, there was sadness, but what impacted me the most was that there was a calm. I remember him looking me in the eye and saying, Aaron, I'm ready to go. His family held his hand and it wasn't too long before he passed away. I've experienced hundreds of deaths, but this one's lasted. And it lasted because it was something that his wife said to me when he had gone. She said, we're sad to lose him but we're thankful for the time that we had with him. And we trust that Jesus has a better plan in place for our family. We don't know what that plan is, but it will be good. In the midst of immense pain, suffering, what stood out to me was that this family had hope. It was a hope that the world can't offer. It was a hope that changed the way they processed and responded in the present not only for the glory of God, but as a witness to everyone and all the medical staff standing in that room at the time. The book of 1 Peter is written to persecuted Christians who are suffering. And it's not the sort of letter you would expect. There's a bit of compassion, there's a bit of sympathy in it. But that doesn't make up the majority of this letter. What we really get is marching orders. And it revolves around uh, this idea of hardship, holiness and hope. Woven through the entire first letter of 1 Peter is the repeated call for a condition of heart and a way of life that only makes sense if you're rock-solid sure of a reward beyond this life. It's a hope that should affect the way we think, the way we feel, the way we speak, the way we act. It's a life that should not only point to Jesus and give him the glory, But it's a life that should cause people to ask about the hope that they don't have, that they see in us. In this final stretch of 1 Peter, what we're going to see is this pattern followed by glory. And you do have this outline, hopefully, in your your notes. Modelling Christ in suffering because of hope. Leaders humbly serve because of hope. Humbly submitting to God's sovereign control because of hope. Resisting the devil, standing firm because of hope. It's the third point that we're going to spend most of our time on. By way of of getting there, I just want a a bit of a running, I want you to see the running theme. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to uh, uh, follow along. Chapter 4, verses 12. You can just make out the fire there. It says, Dear friends, what a way to start this section, hey? It says, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test, test you. As though something strange were happening to you. So don't be surprised, like as if suffering shouldn't be happening to you. You know, suffering in the world makes us want to avoid it at all costs, but I think suffering in our own personal life makes us want to question God, doesn't it? 
Look what he says in verse 13. He says, Rather than be surprised, rejoice. Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rather than be shocked or surprised, we should rejoice. This isn't advice about the power of positive thinking. This is foolish advice, except for one thing, except for hope. Can you see the link to hope in verse 13? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you share in suffering with him, you will also share in glory with him. Jump down to verse 19. It says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to a faithful creator and continue to do good. If you suffer for the name of Christ, surrender that control of circumstances to God and continue to do good in the midst of this. This is what Jesus did in 1 Peter 2.23. Continue to live the good life that Paul Harrington talked about, in the midst of hardship. You can see that in there, continue to do good. When you're ridiculed for your faith and you continue to love that person, it puts on display a hope and a trust in someone who is faithful to right all wrongs, above and beyond our immediate need for earthly and present justice. When we get to chapter 5, he's going to talk to the leaders in the church And he's really driving the leaders towards humility uh, and service in the midst of suffering. He's going to say, shepherd, lead the people. So just pick up with me in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, To the elders among you I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. He says this, this is absolutely, you know, counter-cultural of modern day leadership. I mean, how does humble service in the world make sense where the very stuff of leadership is coercion, money and power? This sort of leadership doesn't make sense except for verse 4. Have a look. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That is worth waiting for. That is worth waiting for. In verses 5, Peter's going to take this same mindset of humility and he's going to apply it to all of us. Now this is where I want to slow down. Just imagine for a minute. Uh, you're with your family, and the emperor is burning the city down. And to make matters worse, he's burning the city down, and he's blaming it on you, Christians. He's blaming it on your brothers and sisters in Christ. What are you going to do? You're going to run. You're going to hide. Uh, maybe you're next to be put to death. How would you be feeling uh, right now? I think it would be very reasonable to be anxious, don't you think? Extremely worried for your family and your loved ones. And it's this context, what Peter does next is he's going to pick one display of humility within the church that shines so brightly in the midst of hardship and suffering. It's so countercultural that it points to a radical out-of-this-world hope that's only possible if you know 
and trust the gospel. So pick up with me in chapter 5, verses 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Being under God's mighty hand is being under his sovereign control. Whatever circumstances you're currently in, have the humble mindset knowing that God sovereignly has everything under control. And why does it make sense for us to humble ourselves in a world where self-promotion and self-exaltation are the very, very much part of the Australian culture? What's in 6b? Have a look. He says that he may lift you up in due time. Submitting to God's sovereign control makes sense because there's hope he will lift you up. He will exalt you. This is why such a strange life that's willing to be humble, have a self-effacing attitude that's willing to suffer and serve and return good for evil makes sense. It makes sense because just over the horizon of this life, all the lowly nobodies who suffered in obedience to Christ will be glorified in the presence of Jesus. Followers of Jesus don't need the reward of this world. We don't need to be treated well. We don't need to be wealthy. We don't need to be coerced to serve gladly. We don't need power to feel significance because we've set our hope on the exaltation and glory of the next and there's absolutely no comparison. But I want you to notice something. This doesn't happen immediately. Can you see in 6b again? He says that he may lift you up in due time. It's not necessarily our time or when we think it should happen. And I know that's hard for many, especially when times are tough. But the big question for us is this. What does it look like to be humble in this circumstance? I mean, it's one thing just to say humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, but what does it specifically look like for us uh, to do this? The answer comes in verse 7. Have a look. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Hopefully that's come up. It has. We humble ourselves by casting all our anxiety, all our cares on him, on this sovereign God uh, who has us under his mighty hand. When we don't surrender our worries about circumstances into God's hands, we're actually doing the opposite of humility. We're actually displaying pride. Pride hangs on to anxiety because it says, God doesn't have this under control, or I don't like the way he is controlling it, therefore I need to cling on to and control this situation myself. Of course I'll be anxious if it's up to me to be in total control, if I'm the one who has to handle it or is handling it. Humbly, hand, humbly handing over control to God demonstrates to the world a hope that they don't have that God will raise you up when it's the right time and a God who actually cares for us. Which would mean on the flip side, the humblest thing to do is what 1 Peter 4.19 says, and we've already read it, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Casting all your anxieties on God means trusting the promises that he cares for you and has the power and the wisdom to put that care to work in your life. You can either carry the worry or you can cast it. 
think many of us choose to carry it, don't we? We let it tear us up inside. We cease to become productive. Anita Manhood, Mahood, sorry, uh, said this on Wednesday night at prayer meeting. And I'm going to quote her because I thought it was good. Worry is like a rocking chair. We go back and forth, but we get nowhere. If we choose to leave it in God's control, the problem may still exist, but we just won't be consumed by it. Look in verse 7 again. Notice it says, cast some of your anxiety on him. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, cast all your anxiety. We're not meant to carry any of it. Casting all your anxiety on God doesn't mean sit on your hands and do nothing. It does, does mean we still make wise decisions. We act in the moment. We put, put precautions in place. We pray for deliverance. We pray for help. We pray that God would intervene. We just don't worry about it. Burdens are going to accumulate and pop up constantly throughout the day. Learn to humbly cast them on Jesus every single time they do. When anxiety comes, cast it. About two years ago, Susanna and I thought we'd never be able to have children. Uh, We'd been trying for nearly seven years. It's a long time. Maybe not as long as others, but it felt long for us. And I can tell you there were times we questioned the goodness of God. There were times we didn't pray. There were times we were angry. There were times when we were asked by people how we were going and handling infertility. We gave the stoic response when secretly we were struggling and we were quite anxious about it. In many ways, I didn't want people to know that we were in pain. We were pridefully handling it, but we weren't. You know, the moments of anxiety didn't stop when Moses was born. The devil was going to fuel anxiety through every stage of his life. I know that from riding his first bike to driving his first car like Hamish uh, is doing. What anxiety are you hanging onto? Maybe finances are getting tight. Maybe you're battling with sickness. Maybe you're concerned about what 2023 will bring. Maybe you have a family member who doesn't love Jesus. Learn to humbly cast that on Jesus. Maybe you worry if, you worry if your children will ever love Jesus. I worry about that. And I need to learn to humbly cast that on Jesus and continue to faithfully steer miles towards him. The world doesn't need to see that we can just survive, that we're handling it. They need to see that we have a hope. And in many ways, they need to see a public casting of our anxiety on Jesus. You might say, you know what, I'm actually struggling. But I'm going to cast my burden on the Lord because I trust in his care for me. And this is exactly why we can do the casting of anxiety. Because God cares for us. This is the gospel that we need to know. It's the gospel that enables Christians a faith of still. It's knowing and trusting in Jesus and the truth of the cross that liberates us. Romans 8.32 says, God, who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has done so much for us. He gave us his son. How much more do you think he's going to give us everything else that pales in significance? Do we trust that? Romans 5.8 
God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. One of the greatest hopes that we have is in 1 Peter 3.18, and Cam preached this for us last Sunday. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Jesus Jesus loves and cares for us because he's made a way for us to be eternally safe in the arms and presence of God. Casting all your anxiety can only ever be fully achieved when impacted and influenced by the truth of the gospel. Can you see and do you believe how much he loves and cares for you? We cast our anxiety on him by constantly claiming the promises of God and reminding ourselves of his truth. I'm worried, but God says he loves and cares for me, that he controls all things. He has me under his mighty hand. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Anxiety follows when we forget that God is the one who cares for us. Anxiety follows when we forget that God is the one who cares for us. We're not left, left adrift on the sea of chance, facing shipwreck on some shore of an impersonal destiny. We're under the sovereign care of a God who controls the course of history and is intricately involved in the everyday life of each of his children. In submission, one genuinely is set free from the fear of anxiety because to be in the arms of God and to be under his mighty hand is to know know divine provision, care, forgiveness and safety. If you're just checking out who Jesus is today, then you can know this care in a personal way by putting your trust in Jesus. Peter's saying to the church here, and he's saying it to us, in the midst of hardship and most definitely heightened anxiety, put this kind of humility on display. Because it not only glorifies God, but puts on display a hope that the world doesn't have. It puts on a, a display a hope that the world needs. They don't have it, but they desperately need this hope. A hope that says... My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And this is where it gets tough. When darkness veils his lovely face, what are we going to do? We rest on his unchanging grace. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my, can you finish it with me, my hope and stay. Well, how does Peter close off this letter and we're coming to a close? There's someone who doesn't want us to live this way. There's someone who is against us. Pick up in verses 8. He says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. It doesn't really look like a roaring lion, but I hope you get the picture. Essentially, he's saying, be switched on. The devil's looking for a crack in your faith. Look at verse 9. 
Resist him, standing firm in your faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. How do we resist the devil? Don't stop believing. Don't stop being humble. Don't stop returning good for evil. Don't stop rejoicing in suffering. Don't stop blessing. Don't stop loving. Don't stop casting your anxiety on Jesus. This is successful resistance to the lion, even if it costs you your life. Well, how is this even possible? Well, by believing, verse 10, with all your heart. Have a look. And the God of all grace, who called you to this eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. The God of all grace will himself restore, strengthen and establish you. God's not going to delegate that job to someone else. God who has all the power and all the dominion is going to do that himself. This is the great hope that we have. The future beyond the suffering of this world is a reward in heaven, a crown of glory, and exaltation in the presence of an all-satisfying God. A hope, is, a hope that is built on the truth that all wrongs against us will one day be set right. All patience under mockery vindicated. All shame in the world taken away and replaced with honour. All pain will be removed. All losses restored. All brokenness mended. All humiliation exchanged with garments of glory. All slander revealed to be false before the whole world. All loss of potential income repaid with eternal riches. All quiet faithfulness replaced with global fame among the millions of the redeemed. This is why we can live holy lives. The phrase in verses 8 where it says, be sober, be alert and sober, is repeated three times in this book. And the first time he, he brings this out is in chapter 1, verses 113. And he says this, he says, with minds that are alert and sober... Set your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus is revealed at his coming. The book of 1 Peter is pushing us towards thinking, feeling, and acting in a way that only makes sense if you're absolutely sure of a great reward in heaven and a God who loves you and a God who cares for you. A way of life that can only be explained by an unshakable hope beyond this life. And a way of life that will cause people to ask about the hope that is in you. And why can we do this? Because Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection guarantee that our hope is not in vain. His death and resurrection guarantee that a hope is not in vain. God's not going to fail you. He cannot fail you. Whereas verse 12 says, stand fast in it. I began this sermon with a story about one man who died in such a way 
Now, that was radically different to the hundreds of other deaths that I've experienced. He and his family simply trusted in the goodness of Jesus and they put on display to all the medical staff on that day a hope that the world doesn't have. They truly cast all their anxiety on Jesus because they knew that God cared for them. They couldn't see it immediately, but they knew it and they trusted in it. I can tell you now that testimony shone bright. In what way is your life driven by hope and pointing others to Christ? We could sum up the book of 1 Peter like this, and this is my best, best go at it. The motivation for living holy lives which point to Jesus in the midst of hardship is future hope. And one way we can live this holy life in the midst of hardship and suffering is by casting our cares on Jesus because he cares for us. One way we can do this is by casting our cares on Jesus because he cares for you. Why don't we pray? Dear God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the power that it has to speak uh, to our very needs and where we're at. God, there are so many anxieties in the world from COVID to loss of jobs to health to uncertainty. Um, People are looking for hope. They want to know that it doesn't just count on them. God, enable us to live in such a way that, that shows them that we don't have it under control either. But we have a God who does. And we have a sovereign God who is in control of our life, who cares for us. How will he not with him freely give us all things? God, help us put that on display to the world. That they may be driven, not to us, but driven to the Jesus who gives us that hope. God, as we head into Christmas, uh, may we be encouraged uh, to live uh, this way for your name and for your glory. Amen.